Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I'm your host today, Fiona, and I am here with my book friends. Now, I am very excited about today's topic, uh, but I know other book friends are not so much. So I would like to say thank you to them for indulging me in um, this type of book that I really love and is maybe a bit of a struggle for them. So today we are going to be talking about books that span multiple decades. Now, within that category are the books that I really love, which are family sagas. I love a book that has multiple perspectives, takes place over multiple time periods, and love it even more if they are connected by family. Of course, we've left it open to time hopping or uh, non-family sagas as well. But I will be talking about Family Saga today, and I think a few other of our book friends will as well. So let's go over to them and see what they have all chosen. So this week, with the idea of a time hopping or generation spanning or perspective moving narrative, I decided that I wanted to go with Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. This was an interesting one. Like many of the books that I choose to read, it's one where I've seen the movie. And the movie kind of disappointed me. So I was really hoping that the book was going to make up for some of the issues that I had with the movie because I thought it was such a cool story. So there's some really cool elements of Cloud Atlas, the story. Conceptually, I love a lot of the idea of these interconnected narratives, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. It's filled with a lot of different stories that all complement each other with sort of rich differences compelling similarities they lead to an anti-capitalist conclusion like that's a that's a chef kiss for me i'm a sucker for stories about storytelling and for what i would call in maybe movies or podcasts this idea of found footage cloud atlas really delivers that each of these written narratives are something that tangibly exist in the world of cloud atlas it includes travel diaries pulp detective novels letters to secret lovers, death row interviews, and they take place everywhere from the South Pacific in the 1800s to post-apocalyptic Hawaii. These narrators, they're connected, and they're not just people that are completely living separate lives. They all influence each other. So we have a whole bunch of different narratives that are going on in this. Uh, The first one is called the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing. And this follows an American man who has gone to the South Pacific and witnessed some terrible acts of brutality against both the indigenous and uh, the enslaved peoples there, and is now headed home on a ship. And on this ship, he falls mysteriously ill. So he's in a very vulnerable spot, both in terms of the things he's just seen and also physically, he's sort of deteriorating. And he meets another character who is actually a runaway enslaved man named Otuo. And they sort of develop an interesting relationship. 
because as a runaway, as a stowaway, there is an element of dependency that he has to have on Ewing, but Ewing needs him equally because he is struggling so much physically. And the the narrative kind of explores that relationship. It explores a lot of different politics at the time, and it explores the nature of who you should trust. The second narrative is letters from, I'm going to call it Zedelim or Zedelim. I don't think that's actually how it's said, but uh, I believe it's in the Netherlands and it's with Robert Frobisher. So Robert Frobisher is a He's a man estranged from his family. He is a aspiring musician, has run into a bit of hard times. And so he's looking for a way to both further his career and get a roof over his head because he has a penchant for getting into trouble. And there's only so much his pride can take in terms of asking his parents for money or protection when they're already kind of ashamed of their son. He finds a musician who, due to later onset disabilities in his life, is now unable to produce music in the same way that he used to. And so Frobisher offers his services to this man and says, hey, I can take the ideas from your head and try to bring them to life. I can play them out for you and then we can annotate them and then your legacy can live on. And both Frobisher and uh, the other character, the musician are very, very rough around the edges, I would say. And so they kind of make an interesting pair in terms of the arguments that they get into, as well as the ways in which they, they think about music. The, the name Cloud Atlas actually comes from Robert Frobisher's narrative. It is the name of the song that he eventually comes up with. It's actually told through letters to a man who is his lover. That would be Sixsmith, who appears later in the, in the narrative as well. Sixsmith is one of the only characters to physically appear in, in multiple narratives. And um, yeah, so the letters are a very interesting very personal exploration of what Frobisher is going through in his life because he is writing to someone who is quite close to him as these things are going along and so has a incredibly different style of writing than the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing. The next one is The Half-Lives, the first Louisa Ray mystery, which is a fun pulp detective novel uh, set in the 1970s. And it's Louisa Ray. So she's a, um, she's a detective. She's just got word from a whistleblower that there is a big conspiracy and a big sort of morally, some morally questionable things that are going down at a power company. And so she, as a I think she's actually an investigative journalist, if I recall, and not um, like a straight detective, but she is going undercover to try and get the scoop on what's happening. She sees some characters from uh, show up from, from other narratives. She's the one who also meets Sixsmith as Frobisher's timeline happens uh, sort of in the earlier part of the 20th century, and then hers happens in the later part. So Sixsmith is an older fellow by now, but he is sort of helping her along. 
as she's going through her investigation. And this one is very, it's very fun, very action-packed. I always love a, a pulp detective novel. And so this one really follows through on that. The next one is The Ghastly Ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. So Timothy Cavendish is actually the person who was writing the first Louisa Ray mystery. He's an author and he is getting older and he gets on the wrong side of his brother who decides to retaliate by putting Timothy Cavendish into a retirement community. And it's an incredibly strict retirement community. It's one where they have almost no freedoms and they are really in an incredibly vulnerable spot as they are older folks and maybe they can't do everything for themselves. But at the same time, they're having certain rights taken away that are human rights. And so he starts to stage a, an escape. I was almost going to say a heist because this very much reads like a heist novel. Um, it is him and the other some of the other residents of the retirement home uh, protesting against their treatment and trying to leave when they have been stopped from leaving. So it, it is a really interesting one. And it's kind of fun that he's telling his story in this one, but he was also telling uh, Louisa Ray's. And so the differences in writing, um, but the similarities at the same time, because it is the same narrator, are really cool to look at. The next one is the Orison of Somni 451. This is probably, I think, the most interesting storyline to me was Somni, who is artificially created. She was working as sort of a server in a restaurant, I think would be the way to describe it. It takes place in Seoul in Korea. It actually takes place in the Neo-Seoul because this one is uh, far in the future. It's far in the future in which uh, there's this extreme capitalist ideology that has kind of taken taken over the world. And so she is seen as more or less a product, something to be used, something to, to serve the consumer is sort of the way that they see it. Um, and something to be disposed of once she's done. After seeing the horrible things that happen to another person just like her, after she happens to anger one of the consumers, and is later essentially essentially killed. Somni says that that's not okay. And she joins the resistance and actually becomes the figurehead of the resistance. So Somni's story is actually told through her speaking to the police and, and sort of being put on trial and telling her story in such a way that it cuts through the, the propaganda that might have been heard about her, but also is a rallying cry to anyone else who disagrees with the world in the way that it is. The last uh, narrative is Slusha's Crossing and Everything After with Zachary. So this one was rough. It was rough to read. Uh, it was intentionally rough to read. This is in post-apocalyptic Hawaii, and it is an interesting narrative in the sense that um, it's, I think it's meant to parallel the first um, narrative on the, the ship's journey out of the South Pacific in some ways. I would say it's meant to be a kind of tribal society um, that is dealing with the aftermath of a world that kind of tore itself apart. There are 
usually no visitors to the island. There are a small group of people who are still still sort of retain a lot of the knowledge and the technology of the societies that came before. And that is a really interesting one because Zachary, the main character who speaks in sort of like a local, I would say a dialect, he, he uses a lot of strange words to describe things and also likes to leave out vowels, which makes things really difficult to read. Um, or not vowels. He, he, he has kind of like a, is it kind of, he, it's hard to explain, but there's a particular way of speaking. Like you can read it with an accent and he meets someone from the society that has survived and they are trying to get to a place on the island that actually has to do with the goddess that he worships. The goddess, which is Somni 451, the freedom fighter from the last narrative. So incredibly interesting, different stories, very different in terms of the way that they're written, in terms of the characters, in terms of the concepts that you, you see and the plots and where they are and everything. So the format of the book is kind of, you start with the first half of, the first narrative chronologically. So the earliest is that um, Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing. So you start with the first half of that, and then you move on to the first half of Robert Frobisher and so on until you eventually get to Slusha's Crossan and everything after with Zachary, which is the furthest in the future. And that one, you just read the whole story. You read the whole story of Zachary. And then you start working backwards from that point. So then you get the second half of Somni, and then you get the second half of the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. And then eventually the very last section of the book is the last part of Adam Ewing's journal. So these narratives, it's interesting because you could kind of read them just as their own short stories. They don't necessarily need to be connected. There is a little bit, I would say of like a thesis statement and they do have some themes that go well together. But really if one of them didn't, appeal to you all you would lose out on would be kind of like easter eggs i think because the appeal of cloud atlas is the fact that all of these characters are connected at least for me that's the appeal i i don't think i would have wanted to skip over any of them but it's certainly the sort of thing that you could if you wanted to maybe if one of the narratives was just particularly hard for you to read whether that be for writing style or whether that be for uh, content because there are some questionable things in here both in terms of the fact that Robert Frobisher's narrative uh, there would I would say that there's a content warning for suicide and in the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing uh, certainly and as well, I would kind of argue in uh, Solution's Crossing with Zachary, both of them have some really questionable ways of portraying Indigenous peoples and ways of working with the way that we've talked about those groups in the past. Because it, it's hard in the sense that um, Adam Ewing's story is kind of actually supposed to be unlearning the racism that he has within him as he's um, working with uh, Otua. And kind of getting to know him more. It's supposed to be sort of an undoing. And then he actually um, decides to promise himself to continue bettering himself afterwards. But that doesn't change the fact that you have to read through so much horrible stuff to get to that point. And whether or not the payoff is 
good enough for that. I think it really depends on the person. I don't think it was for me, but if you are someone who could either skip over that narrative or understand that it's just sort of, I guess, like a bad take on it, then I would, I would definitely encourage that you, that you do that because there are some really, really cool stories that are here in Cloud Atlas. And, and the ways that they're all interconnected, I think, were some of the really cool bits for me. So Somni451, she's, she's a goddess to post-apocalyptic Zachary and his people. Uh, Robert Frobisher, the musician, actually finds an old copy of Adam Ewing's travel log and he starts reading it to help pass the time. Somni is actually inspired by the life of Timothy Cavendish and his escape because she sort of um, understands her own feelings of imprisonment and isolation in a similar way that Cavendish does in the uh, retirement home. And Sixsmith, as I mentioned before, he, he actually appears in multiple narratives. And each of the characters are sort of wrapped up in each other in a way that's, I would say, like incredibly beautiful. The main characters all have this shooting star birthmark that shows that they are connected. And the ways that their stories connect, they're kind of inspiring each other. They're giving hope and solace and guidance in many cases throughout time and space. It's both a story that's intensely hopeful and looks on people's nature with love and compassion, but is also intensely critical of the capitalist, imperialist, authoritarian structures that we put in place as societies. So conceptually, A+. I knew a lot of the themes and stories going in because I'd watched the movie. And when I picked up the book, I really was hoping that the awkwardness of the movie would disappear and that what was left behind would be the sort of beautiful essence of the story. But I was wrong. Unfortunately, I actually kind of enjoyed the movie better and the movie had some really bad problems. So the hardest to read for me was definitely the plots with the super old travel log, <laughs> both in terms of the fact that I was really hoping after leaving history that I wouldn't have to read something uh, with that particular writing style again, because it's very dense. It's very difficult to get through. Um, he kind of goes on tangents and the content of it was also very rough. As I mentioned, like, even though it's supposed to be him unlearning racism, it's really just a lot of him reiterating racism and then eventually attempting to kind of grapple with it. And so that was really bad for me to have to have to read, uh, not because it was surprising, but because I was expecting something completely different out of his story than what I actually got, having seen the movie and knowing that was sort of the end. I didn't expect it to dwell on it that much. I expected a lot more of his relationship with the other characters. And you you really didn't get that. Like it was a lot of inaccurate history of the South Pacific, I would say. And the rest of the narratives were also challenging for a variety of reasons. Some being that maybe I didn't connect with the character as much. Or again, in some cases, I just wasn't a fan of the writing style. But I do know that the breath of relief that I let out when I hit Robert Frobisher's story right after that first that first chunk, it was palpable. So by the end, I had read enough plot lines that were interesting that I was kind of prepared for the second half. And I I'm I'm glad that I stuck with it because I'm I'm glad I know how it works. But for me, a lot of the appeal of Cloud Atlas, I would say, still is in those themes and is in those in the ideas of the narrative and the concepts that are behind it, as opposed to the actual writing or having to get through specific sections of it. So I 
would say that if any of those sound interesting to you, to try picking it up. And if you're the sort of person that can skim read, maybe just skim read for a little bit until you get to uh, parts that are maybe a little more palpable. Because again, some of those plot lines, really, really cool. Other plot lines, eh, maybe not so much. And some of it is going to be based on personal taste versus I would argue that that first one really is the worst part of the book. And so if you can get through that bit, I think you're golden. So I would say that I do recommend Cloud Atlas, especially to people who like speculative fiction, sci-fi, people who are interested in a lot of genres because it really does pick up on a lot of different um, genre writing, genre themes, and in some ways is kind of a love letter to the concept of jumping around in a time hopping thing. Maybe a little bit different than what Fiona was thinking because uh, Fiona is a big fan of the family saga and the people aren't really related in this. Although I would argue that um, the book kind of wants you to think of them as in some cases like living on in others or as a sort of, a not a literal, but like a, a figurative reanimation or, or passing down, I suppose because they aren't genetically related to each other, but they are uh, related nonetheless. So really interesting book. Maybe not one that I would read again. I don't know if I would uh, recommend the movie over it because like I said before, the movie had very different problems, but in terms of me uh, getting the themes and the ideas, the movie is a lot faster. And so for me, this one would be a movie over book kind of thing, but David Mitchell has written quite a bit. And this is maybe one of his more well-known ones, but if he sounds like the kind of person that uh, comes up with really, with the kind of stories that you would be really interested in, I would encourage you to take a look at the other stuff that he's written. All right. Well, I chose a family history, which is technically the saga of three generations of a family. So it totally counts. Um, Is it your traditional family story? Perhaps not, but it is a bit of a rags to riches and then riches to slowly undermining the fabric of society and perhaps inadvertently causing the death of tens of thousands of people. The book that I chose for this particular topic is The Empire of Pain. The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keefe, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker. So as the saying goes, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you very, very angry. And I can absolutely guarantee you that this family's particular history and the truth about what they knew or didn't know and what they confirm and what they deny will make you furious. The story starts almost like a fairy tale. It is the 1920s and we have three brothers, Raymond, Mortimer, and the oldest brother, Arthur. It is the myths of the Great Depression. Um, They are the children of Jewish immigrants and suffer under great privation and anti-Semitism. However, the three brothers all rise to become doctors. Most of them are happy in their field, but Arthur the oldest sees an opportunity and looks at the field of medicine in a different way. 
he sees an opportunity to make a little bit more money. Using his insider knowledge of the field, he decides to combine his innate talents for marketing and pharmaceuticals. Arthur eventually creates almost like a playbook of how to sell a particular drug and make it a hit. Essentially, what he does is he bypasses the entire traditional way of selling drugs and talks directly to the doctors. For who better is to sell your product than the person who is prescribing them? He also uses money and influence to maybe affect the decision of the FDA or certain politicians that would be making key decisions. And the other thing that is also very, very important is that you downplay the addictive qualities of any drug that you might have. Sure, every drug has side effects, but as long as you put it in the tiny print and instead say how great they are, you don't need to really worry that people can't stop taking it. Isn't that a sign of a success? As these three brothers begin to really come into their own, what they become very, very proud of is their family name. All three brothers work together and they purchase a pharmaceutical company, Purdue Frederick, that is run by Raymond and Mortimer. Arthur, Arthur stays at what he's good at, and that is marketing. And their first big blockbuster hit of a pharmaceutical is, and I'm sure you've heard of it, Thallium. This makes them a fortune. And with that, they start to build that family name. They build hospital wings. They build art galleries. They fund every university that you can think of, probably has or had a Sackler wing. They are known throughout the world for their charity and for their generosity. By the time that Arthur passes away, it is Raymond's son, Richard, who is running Purdue Frederick. He's using these same old techniques that Arthur used that always works. Market directly to the doctors, influence who you can, and downplay those addictive qualities. But the company is looking for the next blockbuster hit of a drug, and they find it in the form of OxyContin. OxyContin, or Oxy, is at the end of the day, a $35 billion blockbuster hit. It makes the Sacklers almost unthinkably rich. And with one hand, they take a lot of this money and they donate it to different places to raise their name in the esteem of the world. But on the other hand, they are also crushing any mention or any blame that Oxy is addictive. For all of their $35 billion, was that worth the hundreds of thousands of people dead from overdoses? Or was it worth the people's lives ripped apart by the addictive qualities of these drugs? In this particular book, Patrick Radin O'Keefe dives into what the family knew, what the family didn't know, who is to blame, how could they escape blame, and how they fought to keep their reputation at all cost, even turning a blind eye to the product and to the harm that they had caused in society. 
Empire of Pain is a family history, but it also reads a little bit like my favorite genre of true crime. It is a gripping look at how this family operated. It's got a little bit of juicy gossip. I mean, what's the point of being rich and famous if you aren't going to acquire like a ton of wives and a lot of like really fancy art? So in many ways, it reads like that kind of fun expose of a rich and famous family. But at the other time, at the other hand, Patrick Raiden Keefe is not shying away from the harm that this particular family has done and the devastating and ongoing effects of oxy and other opioid addictions and abuse and asks that how we in the society today allow people who have money and influence and reputation to essentially escape all of the consequences. The only real consequences thus far at the writing of this book that the Sacklers have endured is the loss of their good name. And at the end of the day, is that enough? If you are looking for a family history that combines that, that element of almost like an, an expose of what the real cost of being rich is, as well as gaining a deeper understanding of the mechanism that allowed the opioid crisis to happen, I would really recommend picking up the entirely readable, very fascinating, and very furious making Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keith. All right. So before I talk about my book today, I just want to give a shout out to another book. Uh, it's one that I was going to read for today's episode, but it was very complex and very complicated and really, really enjoyable. And I find myself rushing through it so that I can meet the deadline for today's episode. And I wasn't spending time with it, which I think it deserves. So I was going to read it afterwards. But I want to give a shout out for that book. It is called The Old Drift and it's by Namwali Sapel. It is a story set in Zambia about three families, multi-generations. They're all interconnected somehow. It's got hair in it and also got a Greek chorus of mosquitoes. thought that was amazing. So highly encourage you to check that out, which I'll be reading after this episode. But for today, I found another book. Now, family sagas are definitely not my type of stories. They are definitely more Fiona stories. But I found my in for this by looking for a book that is deeply rooted in magical realism, which you know I love. So what I found for you today is The Inheritance of Okadia Divina, and it is by Sorida Cordova. This is the story of the Montoya family. The matriarch of the Montoya family, Okadia, is dying. And so she sent an invitation out to all her kids or her grandkids to come join her in her family home one more time. They all know that the invitation comes from Okadia because the invitation arrives in the strangest way. For instance, we have Marima, who received the invitation through a pigeon. A pigeon just flew into her house one day and dropped off an invitation. And as the pigeon was leaving, Marima yelled, Send mail like a regular person next time, Grandma. But that's typical Grandma. Another cousin, Ray, was working late in the office, and the invitation was in 
his inbox for the whole day, but it noticed that Ray hasn't picked it up. So it decided to burst into flames just to catch his attention. Again, classic Ogadia. And on it, it says, "The time is here. I am dying. Come and collect your inheritance." P.S. Don't arrive before 1:04 p.m. because I've got stuff to do. So on the day, many, many descendants of Ogadia arrive in her family home. She's been married five times, so she got lots of kids, lots of grandkids, and it is all time for them to go back to Four Rivers, a place where many of them have left, but Okitia has stayed, and has stayed there ever since she set foot there. The people that lived around Four Rivers, they all know Okitia, and they all have things to say about her, because out of all the land where Okitia settled. That place is always green, and it seems like everything always grows there. And when you have powers like that, so what they think are powers or magic, people will talk. When it's time for Marima and Ray to go home, they decided to drive together because they live close by. And even on the drive, they were all debating: like, is she really dying, or is it just another act of their grandmother? When they arrived, they were a little bit late. Most of the people already there, but they weren't inside the house. They were all outside. When they got out of the car and they look, they see that the place has changed. Instead of the green, never-ending green that they used to see, everything seems to be withering. They can smell the rot. They can smell the decay, and the house itself is all covered in plants. They can see that their relatives are all trying to get in. They have been hacking at the plants that are blocking the way on the door. So Marima may walk up, and they are like looking at their relatives, trying so hard to get in. Can tell that they've been doing this forever, and so they just started yelling, "Hey, Grandma, we're here! You told us to come and collect. Well, we're here to come and collect. Open the door!" And just. Like that, the vines on the door—they all recede away, and letting them in. As they all pile into the house, they can hear the Okadia saying, "Took you long enough." And then she paused, and then she said, "Haven't I told you all not to stare? That it's rude to stare." But they couldn't help it. Everyone was just staring at Okadia, jaws dropped, because Okadia has turned into a tree. It's decidedly Okadia with her face on it, but she is now a tree, deeply rooted into the house. As Okadia parting words, she gave to her grandchildren, protect your magic. And seven years later. As Marima and Ray and Rhiannon, as they all inherited this magic and the curses that go with it, they have to learn how to deal with the effects of this. Not really quite sure what it is that they have inherited, but then when something more sinister arrives at the door, and it seems to be especially targeting the Montoyas, 
the three cousins decided that it is time to journey to Ecuador to try to figure out what happened to their grandma and to get to know her a little bit more. This is a story full of hidden family secrets. There are so many mysteries. And if you love a book that where they talk about going through papers in the attic, looking through old photographs and finding like, you know, secrets, then this is a book for you. The book alternates between two timelines. We got the presence where we follow the three cousins. And then we also got the past where Okidia was young and we found out what she has to endure and what are the choices that she has made and how those choices have shaped not just her own life, but the lives of her descendants. And all of that history becomes part of you, whether you realize it or not. And I love how the story moves from the different points of views and not just the timeline, but among all the different characters so that you can feel how interconnected we all are and how we can draw out that connection and what binds us together and draw strength from those family bonds. It is very much a story about finding out who you are and it is full of girls, full of women who are learning about the world that they live in, a world where they are looked at as objects, the world where people have an obsession to own them, to try to possess them. There's a refrain throughout the book when we were told to guard against brittle things and how that changes the meaning of that when we talk about brittle things. Like, is it talking about themselves as vulnerable as brittle? And how we thought that might be what the saying is and how that takes on a different meaning as the story progresses. And it is a story about learning to the courage, getting the courage to grow thorns. And in this case, literally to grow thorns. So it is a book full of magical realism. If that is the type of story that you like, I think you will really, really enjoy this. Great family saga, The Inheritance of Ogadia Divina by Sorida Cordova. My book for today is from an author who I have had on my to-be-read list for a very long time. Uh, it was one of those names that just kept coming up, but I didn't necessarily know why he was a, such a big deal. So I am talking about James Baldwin. He is a very prolific author who was born in the 30s and grew up in Harlem. And he was a big advocate for LGBTQ plus community and the Black community. So the book I have chosen is actually semi-autobiographical about his child and teen years. It deals with the difficulty of family, but ultimately is a very positive, transformative book. This book follows the life of John Grimes when he's a child and an early teen. So John is introverted, uh, reflective, gentle, and everyone expects that he will grow up to be a pastor because that is what his stepfather does. And though, even though his half-brother is really the one who is related to Gabriel, his stepfather, Roy, the brother, doesn't really have what it takes to be a pastor. So it falls to John. It's just an expectation. Everyone figures that's what he'll do. No question. 
throughout this book, we see John grapple with the church. It's interesting because he's really grappling with the church, not with religion. Uh, that is like a, a, a truth to him that's so ingrained in his life, he wouldn't even imagine grappling with that. And yet he does with the, with the Pentecostal church, uh, which really seems to be both a negative and positive force in his own and other people's lives. In particular, uh, a lot of the negative comes from Gabriel, John's stepfather, who is domineering and abusive and really can't believe that he would be wrong about anything. We get to meet many of John's interesting family members along with Gabriel, and the book actually is, is in sort of three parts, two of which are from John's perspective, and then the center part is three different perspectives, uh, his aunt, his stepfather, and his mother. And through that, we get to learn about even more characters all the way back to John's grandmother. The first section is one that I enjoyed the most. Pardon me, the the, the first part of the second section, uh, which is Florence's perspective. And Florence is Gabriel's sister and John's aunt. And Gabriel and Florence grow up in not great circumstances. And when Gabriel comes along, Florence sees it as the end of her freedom. Because you know, now there's a boy in the family who all of the hopes are going to be pinned on. And also Florence, who is almost a decade older, is going to have to give up her future essentially to look after Gabriel. Gabriel is the apple of their mother's eye and Florence is very, very resentful. Their mother is deeply religious. And although Gabriel is kind of a hoodlum and Florence has no interest, their mother keeps pressing upon them a religious way of life. Florence rejects it entirely, seeing it sort of at the root of a lot of their issues. However, Gabriel, uh, once their mother passes, does become a priest, and he sort of gives up this, this wild life that he's been living. This puts Gabriel and Florence even more at odds because they're kind of on the opposite sides of this, of this perspective. And Florence then associates all things religious with her brother and thinks of them as unflexible. And Gabriel really has that perspective as well, uh, the inflexibility, um, sort of as his, of his religious greatness, which is really his downfall. Gabriel has two wives throughout the story. Uh, the first is a, is a pious, pious woman who is actually Florence's best friend. When Florence leaves town, uh, Gabriel and her get together, and it's that piousness that brings them together. However, it doesn't keep them together. So in these backstories, Gabriel becomes sympathetic to us, despite the fact that later on he's such a negative force in John's life. I really appreciated that because he's such a flawed, horrible character, um, but we could really understand how he got there. The final part of the middle section is actually about John's mother and consequently about his birth father. So before Elizabeth, his mother, meets Gabriel, she meets uh, Richard, who is a store clerk. And Richard's pretty much the opposite of Gabriel. He's, he's maybe kind of enterprising, but a little bit more aloof. Um, he's poetic. And Elizabeth really loves him. However, through sort of a tragic set of circumstances, Elizabeth ends up alone, unmarried, and with child. And so that is really the beginning of John's life. It would be come back to John at the end of the book, 
And for me, this was a really, really full book. I really liked the way that it, it, it came full circle. And we are able to see that through all of these tragic characters in John's life that, that kind of uh, were before John, what we're left with is this legacy of John, essentially. Uh, and even though they're all very tragic characters, he is kind of able to go beyond what they have. And part of that I see is like taking the the positive of religion as life and, and letting go of the really negative and abusive aspects of it. So I know And I've said this before, that religion is not what everyone likes to read about. But for me, I found it really interesting the way it did sort of assess, like it wasn't afraid to be be negative about uh, religious institutions, but it also didn't throw it away entirely. It was great, great to finally read some Baldwin. uh, And I will definitely be visiting some of his other works. His, His prose are fantastic, very readable. They very much bring you right into Harlem, uh, the smells and the and the and the tastes and the and and you can really feel it. So highly recommend his work. And uh, if you haven't read anything like I hadn't, uh, I think that Go Tell It on the Mountain is an excellent place to start. Uh, you get that full sort of spectrum of multiple characters over multiple period of time, two periods of time, and uh, get to hear what each thinks of each other in different periods of time. That is Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. All right. Thank you for joining us today as we explore some titles that take place over multiple generations or multiple years. Again, this is something I really love, uh, and it was really great to take some time to hear some recommendations. We will see you all next time. Happy reading. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm